You are now listening to The Model Health Show with Sean Stevenson. For more, visit themodelhealthshow.com. Welcome to The Model Health Show. This is fitness and nutrition expert, Sean Stevenson, and I'm so grateful for you tuning in with me today. Time is one of our most valuable assets. The legendary Stoic philosopher Seneca said, it is not that we have a short time to live, but that we waste a lot of it. Life is long enough, and a sufficiently generous amount has been given to us for the highest achievements if it were all well invested. There's a big if there coming from Seneca, and it's really about being intelligent and in how we're investing our time. We have plenty of time. Beyonce has the same 24 as all of us. LeBron James has the same 24 hours as us. You name the successful person, oftentimes they're being pulled in a thousand different directions, busy at a level that we don't even understand, and yet they're still able to accomplish so much. And it's not about trying to live a life like that where we're constantly busy, but it's about living a life on our terms and being able to make the most of the time that we're allotted here on planet Earth. It is incredibly valuable. And so this episode is all about taking control of your time. You're gonna be learning about tips and insights and strategies that increase your productivity, improve your focus, your ability to pay attention to the things that you wanna pay attention to and ignore things that are distractions. You're gonna be able to learn how to improve your workflow, to increase your fulfillment in the things that you're doing. And really, is there anything more important than that? That's what this episode is dedicated to. And you're gonna be learning from I'm talking about people who are world-class experts in this subject matter because a big part of our health is being able to have time for our health, all right? That's one of the biggest things that I would hear in my clinical work for many years is people just, I just don't have the time. I don't have enough time. If only I had the time. Well, today I'm here to remind you just how valuable that your time is and that you have the power to invest your time in a way that is advantageous to you and to your goals. Today, we're so often caught up in busyness and, quote, activity, but there's a big difference, as you're going to discover, from doing things, from doing work, from being busy and actually being effective. There is a huge difference. And so again, this is going to be something that frees up so much more time to invest in your health, to invest in your family, to invest in the things that are important to you, because we're going to actually be able to be masterful at understanding time, because there's this misnomer about time management. And the thing is, time is just going to happen. You can't jump in and try to wrestle down time. Time's just going to do what it does. It's managing ourselves in the context of our socially accepted time constraints, all right? Because again, time is gonna happen. The universe is doing what it does. And we are a very special part of this universal matrix. We are life trying to live through us in our individual expression. And so that's where we're gonna jump in and wrestle down is managing ourselves within this construct of time. And I'm telling you today, you're going to get insight after insight and your feeling of being more in control of your time is going to grow exponentially by putting some of these things into play.
Now, before we get to our first expert, I want you to keep in mind that one of the fastest ways to sink your productivity is a blood sugar crash. All right. You can have aspirations of success and crushing your day. And then you get a blood sugar spike in the crash. And next thing you know, you're on sleep mode. All right. You're you're on dazed and confused mode. You're on. I got to take a nap and or I'm going to try to find somewhere to hide out because I just I just don't have it in me. And so that phenomenon that is common in our society doesn't have to be your norm. And there's actually a way to track your blood sugar levels to understand how certain things in life, how stress, how certain foods impact you. That's going to be different from other people. Our blood sugar is something that we can track in real time that provides personalized data on how various foods influence us and how things like stress, again, sleep, influence our body's blood sugar management and more. For this valuable information that's helping hundreds of thousands of people to improve their metabolic health and their productivity, I use Levels. Levels shows you in real time how foods affect your health through continuous glucose monitors. Levels provides access to continuous glucose monitors and the incredible Levels app that pairs with CGMs or continuous glucose monitors to give you your own personalized data. And right now, Levels is providing listeners of the Model Health Show a special offer when you go to levels.link forward slash model. All right, right now, when you get their annual membership, they're giving you two months for free. Okay, so check it out ASAP. That's levels.link forward slash model. That's L-E-V-E-L-S dot L-I-N-K forward slash model levels.link forward slash model. Again, go there right now. Their annual membership, get hooked up with that and you get two months for free. The team at Levels is phenomenal. Headed up by one of my really good friends, Dr. Casey Means, who's really pressed the term metabolic health into popular culture. She is really about that life. Absolute genius. And the technology and the support through the Levels app is amazing. Again, go to levels.link forward slash model. And now let's get to the Apple Podcast Review of the Week. Another five-star review titled Sense, Science, Reason, and Humor by Greg Garcia. Mr. Stevenson lays out the facts, backed by studies, and then cooks it down to a way that I can understand the knowledge. And he seasons it with plenty of humor and 90s references. It's almost like we sat down and watched Saturday morning cartoons together. 110% worth your time. Mr. Stevenson, thank you for what you do. Thank you so much for sharing that over on Apple Podcasts. And wouldn't that be amazing that we can all get together, watch Saturday morning cartoons. That would be fire. And shout out to the Ninja Turtles. Shout out to the Muppet Babies. What do you know about the Muppet Babies? Shout out to the real Ghostbusters, all those cool Saturday morning cartoons. Today, the kids will never know. They got 24-7 access to cartoons on tap. All right, It was a very exclusive, exclusive alert ability to watch cartoons on that Saturday morning. That was pristine. That was like kids time. It was the greatest time to be alive. So shout out for that. And also, thank you so much again for leaving your voice and your heart over on Apple Podcasts. That hits my heart. And it truly does mean so much. And without further ado, let's dive into this powerful masterclass on taking control of your time. 
First up, we have one of the most accomplished human beings that I've ever met. He might be the most interesting human being in the world. And I, I don't say that lightly. Now, not only is he a New York Times bestselling author, not only is he part owner of the Atlanta Hawks NBA basketball team, not only did he sell his jet company to Warren Buffett's company, not only did he sell his coconut water product to Coca-Cola, not only is he married to billionaire Sarah Blakely and the founder of Spanx, not only does he have four kids, not only is he really about his fitness life and he does, he did like a hundred mile race and all this other, you want me to stop there? Not only did he write an award-winning jingle for the NBA when he was starting his rap career, come on. Not only was he 50 cents a mentor, I can keep going. All these accomplishments, the question is how? How, Jesse Itzler, are you able to accomplish so much? It's really special. And being able to learn from somebody like this is truly remarkable. And spending time with Jesse, I was able to extract some things that changed my life forever, to say the least. And so he's our first expert. We got three for you, and he is our first and in this segment, you're going to learn why being intentional about how you spend your time is so important. What he learned about time and energy from living with monks for two weeks, what our greatest superpower is as a human being, and more. Check out this segment from the amazing Jesse Isler. I have four children, I'm married. Uh, I have a very, I have a busy life like, like we all do. But I'm a big believer in flipping the traditional model of building your resume and turning it upside down. And I believe in building your life resume. And that's what makes me tick. I'm fueled by experiences and I'm very, very aware of my own mortality and how much time I, I have left to do the things that I wanna do. Yeah. So I have a very, very big focus on and belief that if you build your life resume, you could be a better employee, you can land your, your dream job, it can help you get a promotion because the more you experience, the more you have to offer. Yeah. And you know, you just become more interesting and you become more invigorated. So this journey was part of that, building my life resume. But what happened was I realized that I'd focused so much on the physical side for years of my life. I have a trainer, I've run marathons, work out, just like everybody else. I've invested so much in that, so much of my daily time is in training or working out. And I've invested very little time in the spiritual and emotional side. And I believe that our greatest secret weapon that we all have, we're all armed with it. And it's really guided me my whole life. It's been my superpower. And when you get a 980 on your SATs, you got to rely on this and that's instinct. And my intuition and my instinct was, which is my superpower, it started to go away because I'm, I got Siri, I got Alexa, I got the news influencing me. I can ask Alexa questions. I'm getting bombarded by, you know, social media and, and text messages and emails. I'm losing my superpower because I, I, I don't spend any time alone. I don't spend time thinking. Yeah. Alexa thinks this thinks for me. Google thinks for me. Right. You have to remember that a lot of things that we do, everything we do is cumulative. Yeah. It's cumulative. So, and everyone's like, uses this as an excuse. They use moderation here like, oh, everything in moderation. 
But the reality is moderation could be an excuse. If you have an mm. ice cream cone every single day, you're like, I'm only having an ice cream cone today. I'm having one ice cream cone. What's the big deal? But you do it for 10 years, you're going to have 3,000 ice cream cones. That's a big deal over time. And I just started again. It goes back to my relationship with time. Yeah. You know, people think of relationships in terms of people, their kids, their parents, but they don't look at the most, one of the most important things is your, your relationship with time. Mm. And I started looking at this and like, I'm doing three hours a day. That's not a big deal. I'm watching a football game. That's what went through my head. What's the big deal? Yeah. I'm watching a football game, man. But when you add up Thursday, Saturday, college, Sunday night, Monday night, fantasy football, all that stuff, which I love. Over the next cumulative 30, 35 years, that would have been 36,000 hours of my life. That's a long time. Yeah. I can't do the math in my head, but it's gotta be a year or two of your life, of like your life. Yeah. And um, that's, you know, like, I don't even remember if the Jets beat the Bills three years ago. Right. You know, like, who cares? <laughs> it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, man. It matters in the moment. And it, and I, I still watch football, yeah, I enjoy yeah, it. For but, sure but I, I became aware of it right. and I eliminated it because you know what happens? Something has to give. As you put more on your plate of things you wanna do, for you it's a podcast, it's business, it's changing lives, it's inspiring, it's growing, growing this followers in your podcast, all the stuff that you're doing. As you do that and you spend more time, something has to give. Yeah. Either you're gonna spend less time with your family or less time watching TV or, or whatever, right. but you can't, keep putting stuff on your plate and expecting that ultimately it's gonna overflow. Yeah. So for me, I with four kids and a business and a wife and hobbies and all kinds of stuff, the easy thing to eliminate was the stuff that wasn't moving the needle in. I have four buckets. I have my wellness bucket, my family bucket, my personal bucket, and then I have like, causes that are like, I'm passionate about, plus friends and in a miscellaneous, but those are like my four buckets. Yeah. If something is not moving the needle in one of those four buckets, at this point in my life, I just turned 50, that's a waste. It's just a waste. If it's not helping with my family, my fitness, my wellness, my business, it's a waste and I try to eliminate it. Yeah, So that's respect because and you've heard this as well. A lot of people are, you know, they they pipe on and kind of hold up that sign of like, I just don't have the time. I want to work on my fitness. I want to have a great relationship. I want to make more money, but I don't have the time. And the reality is we all have the same 24. And to see what somebody like yourself is doing with that 24 hours, but real talk too, we all do need downtime for sure. Yeah. But some of that, like, and I, like I said, I had a similar experience. I was in college. This was my last semester. I was already a strength and conditioning coach. It's doing pretty well for myself. And, but I was watching every baseball game, like every, and they play a lot of games, man. You know, yeah. St. Louis here, you know, it's baseball heaven is what they call it, you know? Yeah. So, and I know all the stats. I know everybody's, you know, I know their kids' names, you know? Like right. I'm just watching, I'm doing my homework, got the game on. And just one day it struck me, I'm watching them be great. And I'm saying I don't have time, you know, cause I got school and I got, you know, this business I'm trying to build and help people and I'm trying to learn stuff, but I'm just like, I'm, I'm at a stalemate. And I realize I'm watching them be great. Yeah. I'm not even playing the game. I don't plan on playing the game. 
And so it just changed. And for me, I went like cold turkey and I just like literally turned off my cable for a couple of years. And I grew so much in that time, you know, and of course, like I would still watch movies here or there, or whatever, but I just focus on my own greatness instead of watching other people be great. And with that said, you know, again, it's cool to watch football, but I would watch the game. Yeah. Then I watched the game after the game. Then I watched people talk about the game <laughs> for an hour and watch the highlights of the game I just watched. And then I'm like, oh, I'm busy. No, I'm not. You know, so we have to really identify, you said it, awareness is the key. You know, awareness trumps everything, begins that process. So that's such a great uh, piece of advice. And Man, I don't even understand how people can um, not work on themselves. Like, I just don't understand how you can go through life, you get one life, you don't get a redo. We'll never have another 2018. You got a couple more, you just, just it's done. You're never getting your 20s back. I love you, Sean. You're never getting them back. In one more year, you're never getting your 30s back. It's done. The average American lives to be 78. If you're average, you got 38 years left, okay? 38 summers, that's all you got. Your 70s aren't gonna be like they are right now in your 40s. I don't even understand how someone could wanna, could go through life and not want to and want to be and be okay being the eighty percent version of what they could be. I just don't understand it. Like you had mentioned, like oh well, so let's say somebody doesn't want to work out or something. Like I don't see how you could you don't invest in yourself first. I just don't get it. Like I said to someone, I have a test. I teach this course called Build Your Life Resume, and in my course I ask people, what if someone gave you ten million dollars, what would you want to do? What would you do with it? And most people think about it. And first of all, I'm like, how do you even have to think about it? Like, don't you know what you want, you know, out of life or what you would want to do? I mean, what are you working for? But if someone gave you $10 million, what would you do with it? And two things are, are very interesting. The first thing, the first thing is, if someone gave you uh, $10 million, the first thing is that most people say they would go on a trip, they would buy something, they would donate the money, they would do whatever, whatever, you know, whatever's on their list. But it has nothing to do with investing in themselves. Like if someone gave me $10 million, I'd hire a chef, like an organic <laughs> chef. Yeah. I would do things that would extend the quality of my life. Yeah. I would buy a Rolls Royce. I would do things that would extend the 60s, 70s, and 80s years of my life. And that's the first thing that was interesting. The second thing is that most of the things on people's lists are things that they could do now. Like my friend's like, oh, I'll move to California. And I'm like, move. Nobody's moved. Why are you $10 million, <laughs> man? Yeah. Move to California. Yeah. What are you doing? You always want to live in California. He's oh, the time's not right. Da, da, da. I'm like, well, the time is never right. That's the thing, yeah. You know, like everyone. So it's just interesting when you put it, you know, when you start to look at things like that. I put myself in a position where I could ask myself a lot of questions you know, and try to like really figure out like, man, what do I want and what makes me tick? And instead of just going through life in a routine, because in a routine, time goes fast. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden you wake up and you're 70, the average American gains two pounds between 35 and 60. Now you're 50 pounds overweight, you're 60 or 70 years old, and you can't do the things that you wanted to do. And now it's over. And that means you now are going to have regret of what you didn't do. That's the last thing I want. That's the last thing I want, man. I don't want to wake up and be like, I, oh, I regret that I didn't do this. So 
you got to think about it. You got to spend time and think about what's important to you. And um, I'm not telling anyone how to live their life. I'm not a guru. I mean, I'm not Wayne Dyer. I'm not any of that. I'm just telling you, for me, these things are really important and they work for me. And I think it's important that you give a little time and think about this stuff. We just constantly every day have arrows coming at us, you know, things, requests for our time. Hey, hey Sean, man, can I, can I get you for 15 minutes? Just get a quick bite so I can understand this podcast game. And Sean, can you can I borrow $100 from you? And da, 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 and like, you know, we're just bombarded with arrows. Then we have, those are arrows that come at us from people. Then we have arrows like our toilet breaks and we have to fix it or we save a lot of money, but then the roof leaks mm -hmm. and six months of savings. Now we got to go fix the roof and dodge the arrows just means creating a system where you can eliminate some of that. And I talk about it in the book, some, some of that noise, you know, and it gives you it just guidelines to say no boundaries to give yourself permission to say no to things. Yeah. Uh, so you can kind of regain control of, of time. And especially with the finite amount of time we have here in this human experience, it's important to really invest in the things that light you up and that you're inspired about as much as you can. And so I think that's great advice, man. So what about, and this, I love this one, go where you think best. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, I don't think, I think thinking is a lost art form, like I mentioned earlier. And for me, I, I realize that I think best in two places. I think great, very well on an airplane, staring out the window and daydreaming. That's where I get a lot of my goals. And that's where I just get clarity. No one can bother me on an airplane. I'm not getting phone calls on an airplane. I don't put my Wi-Fi on a lot of times on the airplane. So I don't just take fake flights just to think, mm -hmm. but I appreciate that time and I use it for thinking. Also in a car, I like to drive and daydream. And the third for me has really been running. So wherever it is that you think best, it's just, it's important to spend a lot of time there yeah. because that's where you can often get clarity, make big decisions, get ideas. And you know, you don't, you're not going to think great when you're in a crowded space at a bar. Right. So I try to put myself in a position where I think where I think best as often as I can. My wife thinks best in a car. She set up a fake commute. We live five minutes from Spanx, her headquarters, but rather than just drive five minutes to work, she set up a 40 minute fake commute so she can spend 40 minutes just thinking before she goes into the office. Wow, that's so smart, so smart. And something that we all can find creative ways to do. Let me ask you about one more of these, uh, this monotask. What's that about? Hashtag monotask. Yeah, man. Um, I thought because I have a massive to-do list that the best way to get things done was to multitask. Okay, let me send out this thing right here, get on this interview right now, go and I got to do it. And I'm like a million miles an hour. I got it. And all I wanted to do was cross things off my list because it felt good to cross them off my list. When I was at the monastery, the monks didn't have a to-do list. They just had a do list. Whatever they were working on, they did it. There was no clock. They did it until it was 100% done to the best of their ability. And then they went on to the ne next task. They were always where their feet were. They were always present. And they really reinforced to me the importance of monotasking, doing one thing at a time, being where your feet are. I remember, and I'll give you an example just to put it in perspective. I remember when I was cleaning dishes at the monastery, you're gonna get to this chapter soon. 
and they just had a retreat. So they had all these, they had like 500 oh, yeah, dishes. Part. Crazy. Yeah. And I, they treated me like a pledge. So I'm cleaning all the dishes. They're all, you know, out doing their own thing, kicking reading, it. kicking it, you know, whatever. And I'm doing the dishes by myself, washing them and drying them. And I got like 450 dishes left. And one of the monks walks in. He's like, how's it going? I'm like, man, I'm never going to finish this. I got 400 dishes, you know? I had nothing else to do, so I, it didn't really <laughs> matter. And he looked at me, he's like, you don't have 400 dishes. You only have the dish that's in your hand. Mm. And I was like, wow, you're right. Let me get this dish clean. Now let me get grab the next dish. And let me get this dish clean. Instead of having to worry about how am I going to get to all 500, it's the same thing your friend's going to do when he runs his 100-mile race. Yeah. He doesn't have a hundred miles. He has the moment that he's in right, right. now until he's, until he's done. Yeah, that's, that's so powerful, man. So what has been your kind of spillover since this experience that you've noticed specifically in your life that's, that's different or improved as a result of your time there? We just talked about one of them a minute ago and that's just saying no. You know, the, the importance of putting more things on my plate that I like to do and doing with the people that I love to do them with. That's been really important. I realized right when I came home at the monastery, all the decisions are taken away from you. You eat whatever they serve you. You eat when they give it to you. You wear one hour, one out. I showered once. You wear one outfit. Nothing matters. So all the decisions that we have day to day that we don't even think about, you know, what station should I put on the radio? What am I going to wear today? You know, am I putting cologne on? Whatever. We don't, it just, we just do it. We don't even think about it. But they say the average American makes like 35 to 50,000 decisions a day. That's exhausting. Yeah. And when you eliminate some of those decisions, when they don't live in your head, when you feel so overwhelmed with things in your head and you get them out and you put them on paper, get them out of your head, it frees up a tremendous amount of energy. Like by day six of the monastery, because I was making no decisions, I had boundless energy. I'm a high energy guy anyway. Right. Like cuckoo energy because I wasn't thinking about all the things I had to do on my to-do list and who right. I had to email. But I didn't have to email anybody back. I'm off email. So when I tried to bring as, carry as much of that back into my modern life as I could when I came back. And that meant, you know, not being as attached to my phone so much, saying no, not feeling just because someone emails me, I got to respond to them instantly. Yeah. You know, like I get an email, if I don't respond in, in 20 minutes, I get a question mark back. Like, everything okay? <laughs> like, what do you mean, man? Like, I'm just, I just got out of the shower. I have, to, I have to respond to you. Why do I have to respond? Just because you emailed me. Now you control my time. And when I'm going to respond back to you, I'm going to stop what I'm doing with my son to respond to you. I can't wait till tomorrow, you know? So I just, I mean, I could talk for hours about this stuff, man, but yeah. I tried to create the life more around the way that I wanted to live it. Yeah. There's this new term in psychology called decision fatigue. Yeah. And so it's like, I, I like to look at it like a battery. I have it in my book. Really? Yes. So you got this, real. this battery and every decision you make, it's taking that battery down. And if you get down to E on your battery at the end of the day, you're not, first of all, the quality of your decisions goes down. That's a big thing. So you're deciding whether or not you're going to eat the, the Haagen-Dazs or the you know, green smoothie. Man, I fully believe that. Yeah. And so also the, the amount of pressure that it adds to you, every decision we make, it, it takes some glucose out of your brain and your brain, even though it's like two pounds ish 
of your mass, it uses 25% of your calories because of all the processing and those decisions is slowly taken away. So I love that advice of trying to have some of the decisions that you, in your life that you do on a daily basis taken out. You know, like what you're gonna eat, for example, if you got stuff kind of planned or somebody helps to put your meals together, I think that's huge. That's another reason people succeed that do the meal prepping. That's how I live my life. I think it's important to have a system that works best for you, you know, but I'm a, my advice would be build your life resume. Your life resume is as important, if not more important than your business resume or anything else. If you have a chance to create a, mem a memory or a moment or an experience, take advantage of it because you just don't know if you're gonna get that again. And you don't wanna wake up at 70 and be like, oh, I can't believe I, you know, I, I spent all my time in an office. I know you gotta work, people gotta make money. I'm not saying that, but you gotta put things on your calendar that are experiential. You gotta invest in experiences. All right, I hope that you enjoyed that first segment. Now, again, this is all about taking control of your valuable time. Such a valuable asset, such a gift that we have. And we want to make the most of it. And another way that our time really can get into kind of a sucky experience is when we don't feel well, when we don't feel well rested. So keeping in mind that our sleep quality is deeply going to influence our productivity. And there was a study that was published in The Lancet. It was actually done on physicians. And they had the physicians to come in and to complete a work task, like a simulated task. And then they sleep deprived them, all right? Just 24 hours of sleep deprivation. And they had them to repeat the same test over again. Now, 24 hours of sleep deprivation is not abnormal if you're a physician, all right? So this was seeing what happens with their productivity, their efficiency when they're sleep deprived. So they had them to retest and here's what happened. When they were sleep deprived, the physicians made 20% more mistakes doing the same thing. 20% more mistakes doing the same exact thing and it took them 14% longer to do the same exact thing. Now the question is how often are we mistaking doing work, grinding, Get, quote, getting stuff done for being efficient and effective and not causing problems that we then have to go back and fix, right? We can lie to ourselves sometimes that we're being productive and, and quote, grinding, but in reality, if our time is not being used efficiently and we're making a lot of mistakes and we're not able to really tap into a good workflow, that's really what's robbing so many of us is the fact that we're simply not well-rested. And so with that, obviously paying attention, putting a priority on our sleep quality is of the utmost importance. And of course, I've written an international best-selling book on the subject, translated in over 22 countries. No big deal, no big deal. And this book is called Sleep Smarter. It's an international bestseller and it's got 21 clinically proven strategies on optimizing our sleep quality because it's not just about getting a certain amount of hours of sleep, it's the quality. And that's really what the science focused on in that book. But one of the things that I talk about is creating an intentional sleep wellness environment, right? You want it to be a cozy place where you have a strong neural association to rest and recovery. And part of that is making sure that the environment is nice and cool. Because as humans, we have a natural drop in our core body temperature at night to facilitate certain hormones and enzyme processes to repair 
and to heal us while we're sleeping is truly the anabolic state to be in. And so we can mess that process up or make it harder on ourselves to recover if we're too hot. And you've probably had this experience, a lot of people have, where it's just too hot while we're sleeping. It's just like you're trying to like have a leg out the coverage. Like it just doesn't feel good when your body is overheating due to being hot while you sleep. And so one of the cool things that we have access to today is being able to have a little boost of thermoregulation with our bedding and even moisture wicking because sometimes you get to sweating if you're too warm. And for me, this is why for years I've been sleeping on Etitude sheets. Now, Etitude was recently the subject of a randomized controlled trial and it found that mental alertness during the day improved by upwards of 25% after sleeping on Etitude sheets and 94% of people preferred sleeping on Etitude sheets than the regular run-of-the-mill sheets that are out there. Now, these sheets are free from harmful chemicals, irritants, allergens, they're hypoallergenic, they're moisture-wicking, thermoregulating, and right now you can get 15% off these phenomenal sheets when you go to attitude.com forward slash model. That's E-T-T-I-T-U-D-E dot com forward slash model. Use the code model15 at checkout. Plus, they give you a 30-night sleep trial. So you get to sleep on them, think on them, dream on them. And if you don't absolutely love them, which you will, but if you don't absolutely love them, you can send them back for a refund. So you've got nothing to lose and great sleep to gain. So head over to attitude.com forward slash model. And now moving on in our compilation to help you to take control of your time. Next up, we have New York Times bestselling author and Truly, if we're talking about a genius in the field of productivity, this is the guy. I'm talking about Georgetown University professor and expert in productivity, Cal Newport. In this segment, you're going to be learning why doing something called deep work is so valuable today, what attention residue is, why the average person today is actually hardwiring their brain to be distracted and what we can do about it. Check out this segment from the incredible Cal Newport. Deep work is my term for the activity in which you are focused without distraction for a long period of time on a cognitively demanding task, right? So it's gotta have your full attention. And when I say no distraction, I mean not even a glance at a phone or a glance at an inbox. It has to be completely locked in attention on something that's cognitively challenging for you. That is deep work. Almost every other activity you do by definition will then say is shallow work. So you can really think about all of your professional activities as being one of these two things. It's either deep or it's shallow. I think we have it completely wrong how we're approaching work in the knowledge workplace. I mean, this is familiar to me. It's like when I arrived at college and said, wow, these other students are terrible at studying. And if we're a little bit smarter about it, you can do much better. I see the same thing in the modern knowledge work workplace, that we are working in ways that are actual terrible ideas if your goal is to take a bunch of human brains, connect them up in networks and produce things that are valuable. So what we're doing now in the modern workplace is instead of the deep work, which is the best way to actually take your brain and produce valuable things with it, which is the primary goal of knowledge work. Instead of doing this, we filled the days with these sort of shallow activities, mainly communication, talking about work. 
sending emails, responding to emails, the video game challenge of trying to stay on top of an inbox without the unread messages getting too large, going from meeting to meeting. None of this, none of this is directly related to using your cognitive resources to produce something valuable. And so what I think is going on is that knowledge work, especially in the age of digital networks, is just really, really new. I mean, if you go back and look at how people used to run factories in the very early days of the Industrial Revolution, it didn't look like Henry Ford's efficient assembly line. We were running these things in incredibly inefficient ways because it was new and it was complicated and we stuck with things that were kind of convenient and easy. That's where I think we are in knowledge work right now. This idea that we should all just be hooked up to communication channels, maybe some Slack channels or an email inbox where we have an email address associated with our name. We should just be sending messages back and forth all day, sort of working things out on the fly in an ad hoc manner and jumping in and out of meetings. I mean, all of this is just like the very early stage industrial revolution factories. There's new technologies, there are new pressures in the economy, and we haven't yet figured out what's the right way to work. So, so deep work in some sense is my attempt to help start the uh, inevitable conversation, which is, okay, what's the best way to actually get things done in this new type of world of work? Mm, man, this is ringing true. And also, this really brings up for me, uh, even how our education system is set up. It's still set up in very much the same way as the assembly line worker, you know, getting people ready to work in a factory job or on a farm or something. And we should be getting people prepared for working in this environment of knowledge workers. And of course, schools are changing somewhat, but you know, uh, books like this are, I think it's a real valuable tool for us to get our hands on. We don't have to wait around for the curriculum to change. And so I wanna talk about a couple of the value points of deep work. And one of the, there's two in here that you talk about. The first has to do with learning. And I think this directly goes in with kids as well as us as uh, people that are in the workforce and creating value. So let's talk a little bit about that. Why deep work uh, has this great value in as far as learning is concerned? Yeah, this is one of the, the primary reasons why I think deep work should be a tier one skill for anyone in the knowledge economy. It's because the better you are at concentrating intensely, the easier it is for you to learn complicated things fast. So if you are very comfortable with intense concentration, when it comes time to learn a new system, a new idea, new types of mathematics or information system or new business strategy, whatever it is, the type of thing that changes incredibly rapidly right now in our current economy, if you're adept at deep work, no problem. Intense concentration equals very fast learning of complicated information. And of course, the flip side is what we should be worried about. If you are completely uncomfortable with intense concentration, if you're of that unfortunate generation that has never known anything but life with ubiquitous access to the internet on a phone in your pocket, and so your brain has never actually established any comfort with long, unbroken concentration, it becomes incredibly difficult for you to pick up complicated things quickly. And this is a huge disadvantage in the knowledge economy. I mean, this is really going to put you behind and make it much harder for you to get ahead, for you to actually move ahead in your career. So the ability to learn quickly is one of the key superpowers that deep work provides you. Wow, man. This is this is really troubling. I mean, like when you said it, it kind of hit me like our kids are literally growing up with this technology and just instant access to distraction, you know, 24-7. Like my son who's in high school, I'm still just kind of fascinated that they can use their phones in class. Like I, I remember I was one of the first kids to have, this is really messed up, but I had a beeper, right? And my beeper got taken, you know, just for having it at school. And now it's just like, oh, yeah, you've got class time. You can, you know, jump around on. I'm like, why is my son sending me memes at school, you know? 
but it's just the yeah. nature of the the situation. It's a problem. I mean, we're we're accommodating this, and I don't. I really don't think we should. I mean, it, we're, we're so quick to adjust and say, well, you look, kids these days need to be on these phones, looking at this information, connecting with each other. That's just sort of what it means to live in the high tech world. But we forget that most of these tools, the tools that are capturing their attention, that are that are hurting their ability to concentrate, to function in our economy, these are products of the digital attention economy, right? I mean, it, these are tools that are invented primarily just to extract time and attention from people that can be repackaged and sold to advertisers. It's taking the value that you could be producing as an individual by learning something new or building something new or connecting with your family or friends or being a part of your community. It's taking this value that you're capable of producing as a human being, and instead it's extracting it away and locking it up in the stock price of a small number of these large companies. It's basically, it's allowing Mark Zuckerberg to have a massive house uh, or three or four massive houses instead of you being able to learn something hard so you can feed your family better. In other words, what I'm trying to argue is the thing that's, especially with young people, that's capturing their time and attention is not some fundamental technology that's at the core of what it means to function in the modern age. It's basically just a tool for advertisement delivery. And so it's not just that we're giving up this tier one skill of deep work, but we're doing it so that a small number of advertising selling firms can do better. And I don't mean to go on a sort of conspiratorial rant here, but but you have to understand right now, Facebook is valued by market cap $150 billion more than ExxonMobil. They're, they're finding it to be remarkably more lucrative to extract time and attention out of our heads than ExxonMobil is finding to extract oil out of the ground, oil that we actually need to fuel all of our car and our machineries. They're making more money. It's more valuable extracting time and attention out of our head. These are BMF companies. The attention economy has never had companies as large as companies like Facebook is right now. We've never had companies that were so large and so powerful built just on trying to distract us and just take our time and attention. And so deep work in some sense is a, a rallying call to say, I am more interested in using my capacity as a human being with a brain capable of doing magnificent things. I'm more interested in using this capacity towards learning hard things and producing things of value for connecting with my family, for being a part of my community. I'm less interested in giving 340 minutes a week, the average amount of time the average American uses Facebook products to these large, massive advertising conglomerates. Focus wow. is deeply human. Focus is deeply productive. The ability to do this is something that we should be demanding to be in our life, something that we should be cherishing and seeking. So I'm, I'm ranting. I'm a nerd. I'm a focus nerd. <laughs> I'm, a nerd. I'm a nerd about focusing. But as you can see, it's something I, I get energized about because I think this is a huge issue on a lot of fronts in our current age. Wow. Um, I'm just imagining uh, Mark Zuckerberg trolling you like, no, oh, I'm a different kind of nerd. You know, but this the reality is, as like you said, you know, when we're truly focused, when we truly give uh, something our attention, that's where beauty really takes place. That's where the great depth of our uh, human human potential can come out, you know, just like all of this surface level stuff that we're engaged in that we're doing, we're not really tapping into our potential. And this even goes to, like you talked about learning, you know, uh, there's a lot of folks who listen to the show who are in the health and fitness field or very passionate about it. This is how you actually can engage and, and create more neural connections in your brain and become very good at things, be it, you know, a physical skill or uh, some knowledge-based thing. Um, there's a couple of ways that we learn, you know, one is through kind of rote memorization and, and a continued exposure. And then another way is just really through something that's a really emotional, right? An emotional impact 
that's why I do these shows is because I think it hits a real visceral spot for people, you know, get that emotional engagement, but you learn it better, you know, when you're able to truly deeply engage with the information. And so now let's talk a little bit about that, about just kind of what's going on in our brain. So what is all of this distraction actually doing to our brain? I definitely want to talk about the concept of attention residue. Yeah, well, attention residue, I, I think, is something we should all be very worried about. I mean, basically, in the late 1990s, people were really into multitasking in the old-fashioned way, where they would actually have three windows open at the same time on their computer while they were talking on the phone, and people said, hey, I could do multiple things at once. Okay, pretty quickly we figured out that doesn't work. Right? I can't hear what's going on on the phone or I'm missing what's going on on the computer. So people learned, I guess this would be somewhere in the early 2000s. Okay, I'm not going to multitask. I'm going to do one thing at a time. But what we started doing instead was almost single tasking. So we just have one window on the computer. We're just doing one thing, except we do these just checks every five or 10 minutes. So I think I'm trying to write a chapter, but every five or 10 minutes, maybe I have to do a just check on my phone. And then a just check of my my Twitter feed and a just check of, of Google News to see what's going on. And what we've learned is that there is a phenomenon called attention residue that's making those just checks almost as damaging as pure multitasking. Because what happens is, is that the damage to your ability to concentrate, your damage of the ability to do high-level cognitive work, it doesn't depend on how long you spend on a distraction. It's the context switch that kills you. So if I switch my attention over to an email inbox see a couple emails that I, I can't answer now, I know I need to get back to later, and then switch back to my main task. Even if I only glanced at that inbox for 30 seconds, that's going to leave what's called attention residue in my mind, which can reduce my cognitive performance for 10, 15, 20 minutes going forward. Right. The fact that I looked at my inbox for 30 seconds doesn't matter. It's the fact that I switched my context to the inbox and brought it back that leaves a residue. I mean, this is easy to test in the lab. It's very replicatable. A, a quick switch of attention from your primary target, and then you come back to your primary target, performance plummets. So what's happening, I think, to most students and knowledge workers today is that they're doing these just checks enough that they are persistently in a state of attention residue. So essentially, we are working today in a state of self-induced, persistent, reduced cognitive capacity. It's like a reverse nootropic. Like if I walked mm. in and said, Here's a drug that's going to make you like 20% dumber, like it's just going to slow you down. And I want to make sure that you're taking this all day long, right? You would kick me right out of your office. Like, are you kidding me? Get out of here. But if I do that same thing, but I, I call it social media or I call it, you know, Gmail, we, we don't realize it's having the same effect. So I, I think we're, we're, uh, we're, we're underselling our potential in the economy right now because of the attention residue effect. We don't even realize it. This is blowing my mind right now because you just said reverse nootropic. And that right there is a perfect selling point. It's just like, why would we want to take something or do something that makes us less efficient, that makes us dumber? Like it's a, yeah. you know, I think about the limitless pill and then we've got like the Lloyd Christmas pill over here, you know, and like so many of us are yeah. taking the Lloyd Christmas pill. And so you mentioned that this, you know, this attention residue, and I also have referred to it as a switching cost, right? There's a cost associated with you jumping back and forth. And I love how you said these just checks and really everybody listening, how often do you do that? You know, you might be working on a particular task, something that you need to take care of, but you just, just check your phone real quick, you know, reach over. And what you're doing every single time is you're laying down more myelin, right? F to create this kind of neural association to every time I'm trying to get focused, I distract myself every five to 10 minutes. In your brain, it becomes incredibly hard to not do it, right? And we talked about this uh, several times on, on the show, Cal, 
of this whole idea and really fascinating way that our brains become hard. Like this is, we're creating physical structure in our brain when we do this to ourselves. So it's just bananas, man. Yeah. And it is permanent. That, that's the other scary thing about it. So attention residue is scary because it means you didn't even realize that you're reducing your performance. The hardwiring is the other scary part that we have this increasing evidence that once your brain becomes used to getting these distractions all the time, it permanently reduces it. So then if you say, okay, you know what, I'm going to go to a cave, you know, somewhere where there's no internet and no electricity. And now I'm going to work really hard on this hard thing. You're going to fail if your brain has been hardwired to expect this. The late Cliff Nass at Stanford had this great research on it where, where essentially uh, he could compare, you know, he put people who were sort of chronic, distracted multitaskers uh, in a lab. And next to him, he put people who, who really didn't do a lot of that in the lab. And they were both cut off from any source of distraction. They said, just work on these hard problems. And the chronic multitaskers really had a hard time, even when their sources of distractions were removed from them because the brain had rewired. And, and, you can get it back. And a lot of what I talk about in some of the chapters of my book is essentially what's the cognitive equivalent of sort of getting in the shape physically. Mm -hmm. You can do it. It's a pain, but you have to think about it with that same sort of rigor. It's just like if I was going to go run a marathon, I'm going to expect that's going to take a lot of long mornings running around the, the track. It's the same thing that if you've been a chronic distracted person, if you want to regain a deep work skill, you can do it, but it's not something that you can change tomorrow with a few productivity hacks. It's actually going to take some pretty serious training. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be uncomfortable. Well, you know, I tell people there's this basic, uh, especially when you take on a new habit, there's initially the first phase is like this new phase, you know, it's exciting. I'm going to get started. I'm going to do this new thing. But then you hit the discomfort phase relatively soon where it's just like, I don't like this. And your brain is even fighting you because it's so used to doing the same thing. And eventually if you can kind of push through that and some tools to do that, you know, just immersion, getting yourself in the right environment, the right kind of information, the right messages, uh, creating some situations that, um, you know, that eliminate some of these things like distractions or the negative foods or whatever, you eventually get to the state of comfort, right? But you still have to consciously think about it. It's like a conscious competence. And eventually you push through that and it becomes necessity, right? I have to work this way. Like that's that phenomenon. People feel like I have to work out. You don't hear people say that very often, you know, but when it happens, it happens. And that person knows what they mean. You know, so that's where eventually we can all get to. And I want to share this study in your book real quick. So this was a professor at the University of California, Irvine, observed knowledge workers in real offices and found that interruption, even if short, delays the total time required to complete a task by a significant amount. All right. We're mistaking this busy, busy work for actually being effective. Right. Yeah, we're mistaking that for being effective. And we're I think we're building our work cultures right now primarily around convenience. Right. I mean, yeah. it's really convenient for everyone involved if everyone can reach everyone else at any point, because that means you don't have to do much pre-planning of your day. You don't need complicated systems that help decide, like, how does this type of work get done? You don't have to think ahead. You don't have to have pretty complex productivity type uh, processes in place. If we can all just talk to everyone at any time, it makes your life easier in the moment as a worker. The point is though, in a business, the goal is not to make life as easy as possible for the worker. It's actually to produce as much value as possible. And those things are usually directly at odds with each other. So that's what's so crazy, I think right now about the way we run knowledge work workplaces. I mean, imagine if I was running a factory and I, I spent all this money on these, these, these robots for building the cars, but I kept, you know, stopping them and turning them off every 20 minutes because whatever, I needed to take a phone call and they were loud and it took a while for them to come back online and we were producing cars at half the rate we could be doing. The factory owners were like, are you crazy? 
Like this is a terrible, and if I say, but no, it's convenient. It's just convenient for me just to kind of turn these, they would say, it's crazy. I don't care if it's convenient, run the factory in an efficient way. We have to have that same type of thinking for the knowledge workplace. I get it that it's easy that everyone can email everyone at every point. And I get it that it's not obvious how you actually have to run an office if you can't do that. But it wasn't obvious to figure out the assembly line either. But you know what? Henry Ford produced 10x times more cars than all of his competitors once he figured it out. So I think we need more sort of Henry Ford type thinking Mm. when it comes to thinking about how do we actually approach work in the knowledge age. Wow. Have we actually, everybody listening, have you actually thought about how 24-7 people have access to you and you have access to everybody? It's kind of freaky. I was just listening to Chris Rock's new special and he was talking about how when he was a kid, like his father left the house at 6 a.m. and his mother didn't hear from him until 8 p.m. at night, you know? And today it's just like constant, you know, this constant connection. And I'm not saying that this is the reason that my relationship is really beautiful, but my wife, like we've already established that, you know, especially when I'm working and especially engaged in deep work, um, my, my notifications are off. Like she's just not going to be able to get in touch with me. And that's okay. Cause a lot of times I'm actually just downstairs, you know, but the reality is like having that time away to actually focus on, and I feel so, so much better because I'm creating something that's truly valuable. I'm creating something great and I feel fulfilled in my work. And so that carries over into our relationship, I feel. And so just be mindful of that. So what I'm encouraging everybody to do is just think about it. If you've got notifications for everything on your phone, Instagram notifications, Facebook, text, email notifications. I'm just going to throw this out there. You're probably crazy right now, but that's okay. I still love you. Well, you got to back off, like turn some of those notifications off and allow yourself some mental space to actually get clear and to actually do some deep work. Um, let's see. I want to talk to you about this concept in the book of the principle of least resistance. All right. Can you share what that is? Yeah, that's my idea. Uh, that if you're in, let's say, a work environment, if you don't have metrics, hard data pushing back about what type of activities or behaviors produce more value than others, you can't just measure the number of cars that come off the assembly line per hour, people will default because of human nature to basically doing whatever's easiest in the moment. Right, so this is sort of human nature is that if you can't, if you can't push back and say, I know this is easier, but if you do it this hard way, we produce more cars or we, we make this much more money, we're going to default back to what's easiest in the moment. And my, my conjecture is, especially in knowledge work, we don't have those clear metrics. We don't have an, a car coming off the assembly line that we can measure how fast that's happening. So in the absence of those metrics, our behaviors have defaulted back to what's easiest in the moment. So the way that we work today with this sort of constant unstructured communication, this is just the principle of leaf resistance in play. This is, okay, If I my goal is to make sure that my life is as easy as possible in the moment this is what you would do. And so that's what a lot of our current work cultures are built around. Right, exactly. So true, so true. And how often do we do that to ourselves as well? You know, especially if we're not like, if we haven't created the habitual nature of like doing deep work, we'll just do the easy stuff. You know, you'll just jump yeah. on, you know, maybe do a couple of emails, maybe do this little thing that is only getting a small percentage of the benefit, you know, versus the thing that, you know, like the Brian Tracy, eat the frog, you know, doing that big task that can move the greatest amount of, of, of leverage in your life. Um, let's talk about this neurological argument for depth that you cover in the book. You stated that our brains construct our worldview based on what we pay attention to. I thought that was really fascinating. So can you talk a little bit more about that? 
Yeah, but I was trying to understand this phenomenon that if you you spend time with people who are serious deep workers, so they spend large amounts of their time concentrating intensely on a small number of very valuable things, they tend to be happier and more satisfied. Right. And this was this interesting phenomenon that kept coming up again and again. In fact, it wasn't even in the original proposal for my book. I added a chapter on this phenomenon because I kept running into it while researching the book. I kept running into this fact that why do these people seem so much more satisfied? And why is it that when you hear about them, you, you feel uh, this sense of, I wish that was me? What is it that's so good about the deep lifestyle? Well, this is one of the reasons, one of several reasons why a deep life, a life focused on focusing tends to be more satisfying, is that uh, our our sense of the world, we have a lot of evidence, has a lot to do with what we pay attention to. If you're paying attention to a lot of stressful things, your, your understanding of the world is, well, the world is stressful. If you're mm. paying attention to a lot of bad things, you think, well, the world is bad. This is the classic, if you watch the local news, you're convinced that your city is rife with fires, car crashes, and crimes, because that's all you, you hear about on the local news. Right. So deep workers avoid a lot of that stress and bad news and anxiety because instead of jumping around through tons of stimuli all day, they focus on one thing that's important, that's valuable, and they do it well. And so their mind constructs an understanding of the world where there's valuable things in there, you're useful in the world, you're producing something valuable. So it's literally their brain sees the world differently mm -hmm. than someone else who spends most of their time jumping around through different stimuli. And I would argue that the human brain is much more well-suited for that mm -hmm. former approach to the world and is not very well suited to what we do now, which is let's let's flood it with stimuli all day long. I mean, that causes a lot of problems at all different ages. Right. And so, you know, a, deep workers are happier people. And I think that's a big reason why. If you want deep work to be a regular part of your life, you have to recognize that it's very demanding. And therefore, if you don't have some sort of clear and fixed philosophy about how you schedule deep work in your life, it's just not going to happen. Right? I mean, it's the exact same thing with fitness. It's hard to work out. And so if you don't have a really clear philosophy for this is when I go to the gym or this is when I train, you're probably not just going to do it naturally on a whim. So the same thing holds for deep work. So in the book, I started listing different scheduling philosophies that I've seen people successfully deploy with deep work. And the idea was to show not that this was the exclusive list, but to show that there's many different options and that you can, you can tailor a scheduling philosophy to fit your particular personality and circumstances. So for example, you know, one that I, I observed a lot of people use uh, was called the bimodal philosophy, which is a philosophy where either I'm only doing deep work, and this is for an extended period of time, like two days, three days, or I'm completely available and connected. And you switch back and forth between these modes. You don't try to mix it together. So I, I, I profiled a professor, for example, who does this. When he's working on a paper, he'll drop off the radar for three days. Can't reach him. Completely monastic, can't reach him. In between, his door is open, right? Students are coming in, everyone can reach him. So no one's that frustrated. It's not like he's gone for months at a time, but he, he, he disappears for a few days at a time so he can clear out all the attention residue. For some people, you can't do that. So another philosophy, for example, is the rhythmic philosophy, which says, okay, same days, same time every week. I don't even want to think about it. I just, it's Wednesday, Thursday, Friday mornings from seven to 10. That's when I do my deep work. I don't want to think about that. A lot of people have seen that be successful. I've seen a lot of CEOs of small startups more recently uh, start to adopt the variation of the rhythmic philosophy called the monk mode morning, which is where they say, and they tell everyone in their organization, mm -hmm. you know, starting at 11 or 12 or whatever it is, I'm reachable. Until that point, 
I'm never reachable. That's when I do my deep work. And everyone just learns. So they know, okay, we don't schedule things there. If, if we, we make sure we get him to sign off on something the night before, if we need something early, it's a very easy heuristic for everyone to learn. And it frees up for them a consistent large block of deep work. Uh, another philosophy that's common, I call it the journalistic philosophy, which is where you take week by week. What's my reality this week? When am I going to fit in the deep work? So you you adjust with the reality of your week. Uh, I call it journalistic because like journalists are pretty good at switching to writing mode when they have to because news breaks and they have deadlines. So it's much more of I'm deep work for three hours. Now I'm doing this. No deep work the next day. The next day it's five hours in a row. So it's more of a sort of scattered shot. It's more of an advanced strategy. More importantly is the fact that there are different philosophies. So just because one doesn't work for you, don't uh, have that uh, bring you to a point where you say deep work in general doesn't work for me. You know, you can adjust these scheduling philosophies to work with the reality of whatever it is you do. The scheduling philosophy is step one. Uh, step two, people who are adept deep workers tend to have rituals that surround their deep work sessions. I mean, as far as I can tell from a sort of psychological or neurological perspective, what's going on here is if you have some sort of set ritual you do, it helps your brain shift into the deep work mindset without you having to expend a lot of mental energy or willpower to try to wrench your attention away from something else. So uh, Charles Darwin, for example, it's sort of a favorite example of mine. When he was working on the origin of species at his estate in Kent, England, he had built a path, we call it the sand walk because it was paved with sand, that went past the most scenic parts of the grounds that he owned. And he built this ritual that, okay, when I start my deep thinking, on origin of species every day, I first do a set number of laps on this path. And that would, would get his mind into this, into the set of like, okay, now it's thinking time by lap one, the concerns of the day would start to wear away by lap two. He could start, uh, 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 booting up in his brain. Okay. What are the actual issues I need to think about today? Maybe by lap three, he's starting to actually make some progress. Then he could go from those laps into a study and be prepared to do some real deep work. And that was much more effective than if he just said at some point, okay, deep work time, and just swiveled his chair you know, towards the desk and tried to work. Modern deep workers do the same thing. Sometimes it's location, a certain location to go to just for deep work. Sometimes like Darwin, it's a, a particular movement pattern. You walk a particular path, you do certain blocks around your neighborhood or on your corporate campus. For other people, it's taking the space in which you normally work and transforming it. So if you have an office, for example, it might be clearing everything off your desk, dimming the light so you just have the, the bright desk lamp on your lamp itself, shutting the door, maybe putting a do not disturb sign on it. That transformation itself can be ritualistic and help your brain understand. The other part of these rituals that I see often with successful deep workers is they have very clear rules for how the deep work session unfolds. So they don't have to think about it. They don't have to have these battles with themselves during it. Often it's very simple things like no internet, no phone, maybe the phone gets turned off. Uh, here's the type of breaks you can take. Like they, they set these rules so there's no negotiating. And all of this is about preserving mental energy so that you can uh, really focus it on the work itself and not on trying to actually negotiate with other parts of your brain about like, well, can't we just glance at this? And do we really have to do this now? I want to talk to you about why you advise people to embrace boredom. It's like, I've never heard such things before. Why do you say that? Well, the, the simple reason is uh, if... Every time you feel bored, you dispel it by giving yourself some novel stimuli from your phone or computer screen. If every time you're bored, you do that, your brain starts to develop a Pavlovian connection. Mm -hmm. Boredom means stimuli. Boredom means stimuli. 
If you have that Pavlovian connection built up, when it comes time to do serious cognitive work, to do real deep work, that type of work is by definition boring because there's not a lot of novel stimuli you're focused on one thing. If your brain has been taught, I always get stimuli when I'm bored, it's not going to tolerate deep work when the time comes. And so what I advise people is not that you have to spend your entire life bored or that there's something good intrinsically in being bored. What I say is you have to have regular practice with being bored and just being okay being bored. If you do that a few times each day, what you're doing is you're breaking your brain's understanding that boredom always means stimuli. So that's why I advise people. So you don't have to be bored all the time, but you better be bored a little bit every day or your brain is not going to be able to do deep work. And so I say, go do some errands without your phone. You know, I mean, do some stuff, stand in line at the bank and be in line at the bank, stand in line at the supermarket, and just be in line and be a little bit bored. It's not going to kill you. But what you're getting is this bigger advantage of teaching your brain. Sometimes we get stimuli, sometimes we don't. And it keeps it comfortable with both. This information is incredibly valuable if we're talking about making the most of our time. Now we've got one more expert to close things out. And the guy running the anchor leg is one of the very best. Now, one of the things that him and I enjoy and we know to be one of the most nourishing things for our brains, and it's a beverage that's been enjoyed for thousands of years, is green tea. Now, green tea contains an amino acid called L-theanine, and it's one of the rare nutrients that can cross the blood-brain barrier and increase the neurotransmitter GABA in our brains, which helps to reduce anxiety makes us feel more centered and relaxed. Now, this is definitely something we want to experience if we want to be more effective and productive. Another way that L-theanine works to improve focus is noted in the peer-reviewed journal Brain Topography. The researchers observed that L-theanine intake increases the frequency of our alpha brain waves, indicating reduced stress, enhanced focus, and even increased creativity. Now, the green tea that I drink is matcha green tea, specifically sun goddess matcha green tea from Peak Life. It's shaded 35% longer for extra L-theanine to support calm, productive focus. It's crafted by a Japanese tea master, by the way, and there are less than 15 in the world. And it's the first matcha that's quadruple toxin screened for purity. There's nothing else added, no preservatives, no artificial sweeteners, none of that nonsense. Just the highest quality matcha green tea in the world. Go to peaklife.com forward slash Sean and you're going to get hooked up with special discounts for their bundles, things like free shipping and other goodies like free tea samples as well. So again, go to peaklife.com forward slash Sean. That's P-I-Q-U-E-L-I-F-E dot com forward slash Sean check out their sun goddess matcha green tea ASAP. Now moving on to our anchor leg here on this episode dedicated to taking back control of your time. We have New York Times bestselling author, accelerated learning expert, and my really good friend, Jim Quick. Jim has been my friend for well over a decade and he's somebody that every single time that him and I connect, I'm learning something. I'm picking up a new strategy, a new connection. He's just just that guy. He's truly amazing. Now, being that he's an accelerated learning expert, he's a master at teaching things like speed reading, memorizing things like speeches and things for tests and things like that, but also in particular, productivity. 
and how to really make the most of our time. And so in this segment, he's going to be sharing why the way that we think determines how we feel and what we do. All right. So being able to actually get the most out of our time and feel the way that we want to feel during that time and specifically how to think faster and better. Check out this segment from the amazing Jim Quick. That's really what it's about. It's it's funny because you mentioned MacGyver. MacGyver is a, an incredible thinker, mm -hmm. right? He has uh, maybe very little resources. And I think a lot of people could identify with that because it's not everything is equal. We have different people have different networks. They have different levels of education. Right. They have different levels of, of finances and such but um, MacGyver took like bubble gum and some some like duct tape, clip. right? And, Made a parachute, exactly. And <laughs> his one of his superpowers is the ability to think, right? And right. I know we've talked about speed reading and focus and memory in the past. And uh, you and I were kind of geeking out about critical thinking. Like yeah. our life right now is a reflection of our thinking because how we think determines what we focus on. It mm -hmm. determines how we feel. It determines what we do. And right. so really the sum of our thinking really reflects our day-to-day -day life and our, in our relationships, in our health, in our habits, in our career. You know, I always thought it was interesting back in school, they teach you more what to think, but not how to think. Right, right. And I think that's one of the big challenges in a world where everything is being outsourced overseas, you know, jobs, mm -hmm. right? Or it's being automated. Uh, there's software that could do a lot of, you know, left brain jobs, or there's, uh, you know, something like artificial intelligence. You know, what, what, what do we have as human beings? What makes us human and makes us valuable in, in life, in the workplace? And I think it's our ability to think, our ability to solve problems, our ability right. to make really good decisions. Right. Um, but I think, <laughs> but I think um, it's one of those things people take for granted because we're not just conscious of our thinking. They say we have an average of what, 60,000 thoughts a day. The challenge is 95% of those thoughts are the same thoughts we had yesterday and the day before that. Mm -hmm. So how do we create growth? How do we stretch ourselves um, to new levels? And um, so I love this because I feel like you make one little distinction in the way you think differently. And there's that Oliver Wendell Holmes quote that says, a man's you know, a mind once stretched by a new idea never regains its original dimensions. Mm -hmm. And so I want people to be able to think in a way that makes them more productive, yeah. allows them to perform better, allows them also greater peace of mind. Yeah. Because in this world of, we've had this conversation in the past episodes about digital distraction and digital depression right. and digital overload. It's really, it's weighing on people's health. You know, this world where people are comparing themselves to other people on social media world, where they're comparing themselves to this highly filtered life of, you know, highlight reel of everyone else's life. But that all comes down to our ability to think, right. the ability to think for ourselves to produce new results. That's so, so powerful, man, because thinking is everything, really. You know, it's our, and I've said this before, our perception is our reality. Mm. And it all has to do with what we're thinking and how we're thinking about ourself in relation to our environment, ourself in relation to ourself. <laughs> yeah. And so I think it's of the utmost importance for us to really understand our thinking a little bit more. And that's why I'm really happy to have you on today. But also how can we optimize our thinking? You know, so one of the first things I want to ask you about has to do with decision making, because that's mm -hmm. a big component of our thinking that has a huge impact on the results we get in our lives. So 
What are some of the new insights, some of the things you've been coming across lately in teaching in regards to decision-making? Yeah, I, I can't think uh, exactly that, that our life is a reflection of all the decisions, the sum total of all the decisions we made to this point, you know, where we're going to live, what we're going to do, who we're going to be with and such. And so these daily decisions, a lot of people are suffering from decision fatigue. You know this, mm -hmm. and it's a big health concern. It's just people are, are wasting their mental energy on decisions that really don't matter in their life. And really, I think it comes down to, I, I tweeted this a few years ago. I said, the most important thing is to keep the most important thing, the most important thing. Mm. The most important thing <laughs> is to keep the most important thing, the most important thing. Because people are getting really good at things that don't really matter, or right. they're using their decisions on things that really don't matter. Um, you know, we've had this conversation in the past about some leaders who are wearing the same outfit pretty much every day because they don't want to waste one of their good decisions. You know, they buy 10 of those shirts so they yeah. don't have to think about, or meal prep, and they don't want to be able to waste that. But um, I did a podcast recently and I called it How to Work Smart Versus Working Hard. And everyone always says, Yes, of course, I want to work smarter and not harder. Um, I filmed it actually in a power plant, an actual power plant. And I opened it with this story that basically said this one day, this really busy power plant just shuts down out of nowhere and it's dead silent. And the employees are running around with their, you know, their head cut off, not knowing what to do. The operations manager, you know, after hours, doesn't know what to do. Nobody could solve the problem. So the operations manager picks up the phone, calls a local technician. And luckily the technician was in the area and he says, you got to help me. You know, we're losing all this business. You know, time is money. We're going to shut down. Please save us. He was like, technician's like, you're lucky. I'm right around the corner. He shows up and he walks around the, uh, the power plant and he goes to one beam. Now this power plant is full of different beams, right? And on those beams have all these different electrical boxes. And he goes to one specific electrical box and he takes out a marker and he puts a big X on it. And he opens up the box and inside, as you would expect, there are bolts, there are wires, there are screws. Out of all of that, he goes to one specific screw. He turns it not a quarter of an inch and then bam, the entire power plant lights up. Mm. And the technician's like, thank you so much. You saved the day, you saved our business how much do I owe you? And the technician looks at him and he says, that will be $10,000. And then the operations manager is like, you must be crazy. You were here for five minutes. All you did was turn one screw. Any of us could have turned that screw. He's like, give me an itemized bill. And he's like, no problem. Technician reaches in his back pocket, takes out his notebook, scribbles on it for a second, tears out the page, gives it to the operations manager. The operations manager looks at it and says, I understand. He goes to his de desk, takes out his checkbook, writes a check for $10,000, hands it to the man. And you zoom in on that bill and it says this, turning screw, $1. Knowing what screw to turn, $9,999. And my message to everybody who's listening is not that you have a screw loose. It's, <laughs> it's really, it's two things. Number one, we live in the, the knowledge economy where it's knowledge is not only power, it's profit right? Specialized knowledge. That's why I love your show. And I learned so much because it's not just the have and the have nots. It's those who know and those who don't know, right? Then those who know wellness and optimization and human performance and those who just don't know better. And so there's that gap. And that's why I dedicate my life to accelerated learning. But the other reason I tell this story is not only so you could be an expert at what you do is that 
there are usually one or two screws. You know, there's one beam, there's one box, one or two screws that really are what I call a, a focal point. A mm -hmm. focal point. It's one or two things. They call it, other people have called it a lead domino, right? One of the first early dominoes you hit and it knocks down other things. Uh, in military, they call it a forced multiplier, meaning that for the same amount of input, you get multiple outputs or multiple right. rewards. So my life, um, based on, you know, you know my learning difficulties that I had growing up from my head injury, you know my, uh, my sleep issues, which you've helped me a lot with. Those deficits has created a really big drive in me wanting to get the most out of the energy that I have. When we're talking about resources, like um, like going back to MacGyver, he has very little resources, but he has a lot of internal resourcefulness. And mm -hmm. I feel like every single person listening to this has a lot of internal resourcefulness. It's things that might not be on, a, on, a, on, a, on an asset sheet, but there are things like your creativity, your decision-making, your ability to solve problems, your ability to meta-think, you know, think about your thinking, your self-awareness. Yeah. And um, that's really the owner's manual. And so when it comes to decision-making, I'm really excited about this because again, if you could just think about some of the bad decisions we've made in our life and the cost that it's had for us. Um, I'm a big proponent on, you know, we've had this conversation about mistakes and a lot of people as we grow older, we're afraid of making mistakes and we're not making decisions. And even I would say not like failing to make a decision is also a decision. Mm, you know what I mean? Is, yeah, this, sure. You know, like when people have a decision about what to eat or not, they go into default mode, they're still making a decision. So I feel like part of it is decision is uh, it's an, it's a fitness. So you want to build your decision-making muscles because a lot of people are so lackadaisical, you know, over like what's important to them. So they don't really build those muscles. So they don't have that, um, that strength, if you will. Um, but then there's also strategies besides fitness, just like um, in past episodes, we've talked about uh, memory fitness and how, even if you don't use a strategy, like on how to remember names, you could still remember names because your brain is, is fitter. It's stronger. It's more energized. It's stronger, just like your physical muscles. Um, you could also do that with your thinking muscles. And so there are strategies also. So for example, one of my favorite one is there really, it's, it's classic. It's called six thinking hats. And, um, it's a great model because I feel like a lot of people aren't able to solve a problem or make a new, better decision because they're stuck from one point of view. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, you wonder why the you somebody maybe dates the same person or they make the same mistake financially in a business. They hire the same people, mm -hmm. um, or maybe they, they do the same problem with their, their, their diet. They, they always fall in the same pattern. It's because we never really get out of our own way and see things from another point of view. One of the reasons why I love podcasts is that, or reading books is you get to see something from an author or an expert's point of view, mm -hmm. and it gives you another pers perspective. And in order to change your perspective, I, I remember we did that event that you spoke at um, along with, you know, like a luminous, you know, group of individuals, your peers. And we had Quincy Jones was one of them. Yeah. And he was talking about, you know, getting perspective that you have to, two ways of changing your perspective is changing your place or changing the people you spend time with. Because we know that who you spend time with is who you become. Because one of the better, one of a good way of making better decisions is spend time with people who make good decisions mm. because you know this uh, from your nervous system um, and neuroscience, you have mirror neurons and mirror neurons are your um, 
put it or like simplify it, there are your imitation neurons. The reason why is not just your biological networks or your neurological networks, it's your social networks. Because they say if you spend time with nine broke people, you're going to be the 10th. Mm -hmm. And it's because you're constantly imitating people around you and not just their behavior, you're imitating also, you're adopting their beliefs, you're adopting their values, you're adopting their habits, right? And we know from habits, you know, first you create your habits and then your habits create you. Right. And it's not just your habits of meditation and movement and journaling, those are important, but really, what I'm very, those are on the physical plane, if you will, but it's also the internal changes that are going on inside. Because when you're constantly doing something and you show up for it, you know, as you've heard this phrase, as, as you do anything is how you do everything, right? You start the habit of, oh, I'm not, I'm, I'm somebody who follows through. Like that's an identity level. I mean, that's really deep because you change if the, one of the most powerful ways to, to make a transformation stick is to change how you look at yourself. You know, they say that the two most powerful words in the English language are I am, mm. right? Because whatever you put after that determines your your destiny or your, you know, your destination in your life. And so one of the ways of changing your identity is by having these habits because it's like you show up. Yeah. You show up. And when you show up constantly, all of a sudden you start looking at yourself different. And you st and that's really powerful to look at yourself as somebody who shows up, you know, in life because that will ripple into all your different behaviors. But going back to the uh, six thinking hats, this is a way of changing your perspective, meaning a lot of people don't make new decisions because they're stuck in one mode. And so the summary of it, uh, it was created by Edward de Bono, and he metaphorically created six color hats. And then when you imagine, and we know imagination is more powerful than knowledge, you imagine yourself putting on this color hat, you have to look at this decision or this problem through that lens. Mm -hmm. So for example, let's take the, um, the white hat. When somebody puts on a white hat, metaphorically, and I'll give you some memory aids because you know, I'm the memory guy, white is imagine like a, a doctor's uh, uniform, right? Or a scientist is, is in white. That reminds you of logic. So let's say, I want everybody right now, we'll make this interactive, to think about a decision that you're struggling with or think about a problem that you need to solve. And I think everybody has one of those things, right? Uh, going back to Quincy Jones, remember on stage, I was asking him like about the problems he had, not just the successes, but the problems. He was like, Jim, I don't have any problems. He was like, I have puzzles. And that's a different way of talking yeah. about thinking, a different way of thinking about something. Because for me, when I think about problems, I'm like, oh, something I have to deal with. And I don't know if I'm gonna be able to handle this, but puzzles like fun. Yeah. Puzzles have a solution. So it's a different way of thinking because the words change the way we think also. But going back to this, when you put, your, put on, you think about a problem or decision you have right now, you put on, imagine yourself putting on the white hat and actually physically like grab mm -hmm. something in front of you and put it on so you have your kinesthetic, um, your, your, your muscles in it. And you have to look at the problem or the decision just based on facts yeah. and logic, right? So that's the only way. And that's great for, for, for individuals because some people don't, they're not used to doing it, but when they have that hat on, it forces you to look through that perspective. Right. To be honest with yourself. And exactly. I think a lot of times we're lying to ourselves on how, how complicated or difficult it might be. Right. And so actually using logic can right. really help to get rid of some so that's of that like mystery. your that's like your spock hat you know for those yeah. for people who follow the star trek you have to look at the issue completely logically and more science-based now another color or hat, data 
Data. Shout out to Data. Yeah, by there you way. go. Next generation. By the way, that guy was born to play that role. Oh my God, Brett. Oh yeah, completely. So you have to look at it analytically. And even if you don't feel like that's you, you play it, make it a game, you know? And we, we've said this, you and I have said this before, that it's not that you stop playing because you grew older, you grew older because you stopped playing. Yeah. And so this is a thinking exercise, a thought experiment, if you will, because this is an episode all about maximizing your thinking. That's what Einstein used to do. Yeah. Einstein used to do these, what he called thought experiments, right. you know, these imagination um, experiments. And this is what we're doing right now. So you put on the white hat and then you have to look at it through uh, logic. You take off the white hat. Now I want you to put on the red hat. So imagine yourself reaching out in front of you, putting on the red hat and the red hat uh, represents as a mnemonic device, uh, red is emotion, red is heart. So I want you to think about now, how does this make you feel? Mm -hmm. So this is this gives you permission because some people look at everything logically, but they don't go with their feelings, yeah. right? And that we know that's that's a superpower also as well. Absolutely. So think about this problem that you have. Maybe it's somebody you need to hire. Maybe it's somebody in a relationship, whether or not you want to enter a relationship or maybe exit a relationship. Yeah. You know, Maybe it's something you have to do with your health. Um, think about it now from an emotional standpoint. So you're wearing the red hat. And by the way, some folks ignore that part. Exactly. It's more bent on logic yeah, right. and not being honest about how do I feel about this? Mm -hmm. Or even just asking ourselves, how do I feel about this situation? Exactly. And then by when we're talking about being a better thinker, this gives you more perspective. This gives you a spectrum or a rainbow, if you will, of points of view. So you can see something, we've, we've heard of the like the elephant, right? where there's an elephant there and you have these blind monks and they're reaching out and they can't see, but they just feel. And one of them's feeling like the, the tail and thinks the elephant is a snake. And one of them is feeling like the, the leg of the elephant thinks it's a tree, right? Everyone sees different parts or feels different parts, but they don't see the whole. And through this exercise, you get to see it from these different points of views. So what are other different color hats? Take off the red hat. And now what you're gonna do is you're gonna put on the black hat. So you put on the black hat. Now, a mnemonic device, the black hat is the is the critic. All right, so what I want you to think about for a memory aid from your memory coach is um, imagine a judge in black robes, right? That's the one that's gonna judge, right? So now I want you to look at this and think about what could go wrong here. You know, you can meta yourself and think, be the critic here, give yourself, but some people live with the black hat and they're just critical about everything. Right. You know what I mean? But it yeah, makes absolutely. sense because that's how they were raised, right. you know, through, and it through can nurture. Be exactly. Yeah. And it could save you from making mistakes and everything, but you don't see the whole, the whole picture. And so the black hat, when you put that on, look at this problem or this decision and think about it, like what could go wrong here? You know, and that, you know, what's, you know, think about your plan B and such. Um, any negative consequences. Take off the black hat. And now what you're going to do is you're going to put on the yellow hat. Now the yellow hat is the opposite of the, uh, of the black hat. Yellow is like the sun. It's opportunity. So what could go, what could go right here? Mm. So that's the more of the, if the black is more the critic, the yellow is more the opportunistic, like more of the, uh, this is like, what, what are the benefits that could come out of making a scenario? Exactly. The and the outcome now, you want. now some people live with the yellow hat, you know, like a lot of entrepreneurs do this and they just yeah. look at, oh, the rosy <laughs> side of everything and right. they only see that. And then they wonder why, you know, they don't look at the, the risk. They don't look at the threats. They don't look at the weaknesses or the competition or anything that could go wrong. They just move towards anything that's pleasurable. And that's not necessarily good either. Um, so we went, we went through this, we go through the red and we went through the white, we went through the red, we went through the, the black and then the yellow. 
the green hat is um, is the growth hat. So this is where you need to make a decision or solve a problem. And when you put on the green hat, green is like growth. It's like plant life. It's like growing in grass, right? And so this is where you're thinking out of the box. This is the, the hat you wear where it's like, what could be a, a an out of the box, new, something we're not even thinking about solution to this whole thing, um, a different way of looking at it. So green is growth. Um, and then finally, the, the last hat is the the blue hat. And I say the last, the blue for last um, because the blue is kind of like the manager of all the other hats. Mm -hmm. It listens to all the other perspectives, the, the one with the black hat, the white hat, the yellow hat, the red hat, the green hat. And blue is like the sky. It oversees everything else. Mm -hmm. And so it listens to everything and then it makes the decision mm -hmm. because it heard all the different points of view could weigh it from different perspectives. And then that's, that's your answer, if you yeah. will. And so this is kind of a fun strategy. And I, I would really encourage everyone who's listening, not just, you know, this knowledge, knowledge is not power. We've talked about this, all the podcasts and the online programs and the coaching and the seminars, they don't work unless you work. So what I would challenge everybody who's listening to do is this is maybe, maybe take a screenshot of this episode posted, tag both of us and you know and share with us a decision that you applied this to yeah. you know because then you really get to feel it and see how it works in your life I, I would encourage also when everyone's listening to this this doesn't have to just apply to your life this works really well for teams so let's say uh, you know your 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 business let's say you're a small business entrepreneur you have a small group of five individuals on your team and you're facing something that's a uh, you know, an issue in your industry or something internally, like, what should you do this product or should you, you know, stop doing this show or whatever you need to do is yeah. get everybody in a room and then take turns wearing these different hats. Yeah. This is also great for parents to teach their children at an early age yeah. because it builds empathy. It allows you to, you know, even if I've had parents actually make out of, you know, different color pieces of paper, like these actual hats, mm -hmm. and they'll take their children through <laughs> these exercises. Yeah. Children will have a question about school, they'll have a question about, you know, going to some, whatever their decision is, and then you could play with this with them also as well. So Love it's that. not just your own benefit, you could do this with your team, your family, and, uh, and more. Thank you so much for tuning into the show today. I hope you got a lot of value out of this. Again, our time is incredibly valuable. We want to be able to make the most of it. So this episode is all about taking control of your time. This is all something we can help with our friends and family to do. So share this out. Share it on social media. Of course, you could take a screenshot of the episode and tag me. I'm at Sean Model on Instagram and Twitter and at The Model Health Show on Facebook. And of course, you could send this directly from the podcast app that you are listening on to somebody that you care about. We've got some incredible masterclasses and world-class guests coming your way very, very soon. So make sure to stay tuned. Take care, have an amazing day, and I'll talk with you soon. And for more after the show, make sure to head over to themodelhealthshow.com. That's where you can find all of the show notes. You can find transcriptions, videos for each episode. And if you got a comment, you can leave me a comment there as well. And please make sure to head over to iTunes and leave us a rating to let everybody know that the show is awesome. And I appreciate that so much. And take care. I promise to keep giving you more powerful, empowering, great content to help you transform your life. Thanks for tuning in.